Our passage is in 1 John chapter 4, so you can find your way to 1 John 4. There's some notes in the bulletin. If you picked up a bulletin on the way in, you can track along with the message this morning. This is week 12 in 1 John. We come this week to the end of 1 John chapter 4. Next week, we'll pick up right where we leave off with chapter 5. And we'll begin this morning with an idea that, uh, if you've not been with us over the summer, is new for you. If you have been here with us over the summer, you can probably repeat this by now verbatim. This is the big sort of overarching idea of the book of 1 John. John wrote this letter so that believers could have certainty about their relationship with Jesus. And that big overarching theme comes from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. We're getting closer to that verse, but looking ahead, here it is. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In this book, John assumes that we believe in Jesus. He's not writing to non-Christians, hoping that they become Christians. In this book, he's writing to Christians, and he's hoping that they end up with certainty and assurance about the eternal life that they have in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I certainly hope you don't check out and say, well, they're talking about something that's only for Christians. I hope you hear the hope of the gospel as we talk about it this morning, and I hope you hear the fact that you can know, you can have certainty about eternal life in Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope this morning that what we talk about in 1 John reinforces your confidence in Jesus. So how do we get this confidence? John gives us tests. These tests are not ways that we earn salvation. These tests are ways that we gauge whether or not we truly have received the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The moral test, do you keep God's commandments, yes or no? Is that the overarching pattern of your life or not? The social test, do you love other believers. We're going to talk about that one this morning. The Christological test, do you remain and abide and believe in the truth about Jesus Christ? We're going to talk about that one this morning as well. Two of these tests are mashed together in our passage, 1 John 4, 13 to 21. It's the Christological test and the social test combined. And so we're going to talk about both of them this morning. And this is just more of what we've seen over the summer. John moves in circles. And he brings up an idea, and then he moves on to another idea, and then he comes back to the first idea. And he just does it over and over and over again. And the repetition is helpful for people trying to learn the truth about Jesus, trying to find certainty and assurance in our relationship with Jesus. And the differences, as John circles back to these same ideas, the the different emphases that come out in each passage give us insight as to how we ought to think about all of these things. So here's the big idea of our passage. Very simple, very straightforward. You and I can have confidence. Christians can have confidence about eternal life when, first, the Christological test, we believe the truth about Jesus. Second, the social test, we love our brother. You pass those tests, you can come away with confidence and certainty about the eternal life that you have in Jesus. Last week, I mentioned, as we talked about the social test last week, I mentioned this word agape, this word love, that shows up in 1 John over and over and over 
and over again. John says so much about love, he's been labeled with the nickname the Apostle of Love. And we sort of poked fun at that nickname last week and acknowledged the awkwardness of it. Here's the numbers behind this nickname. The book of 1 John mentions love 46 times, more than any other book in the entire New Testament. Even though this is a short book, it talks about love more than any other book in the New Testament. And this couple of paragraphs that we looked at last week and this morning, 1 John 4, 7 to 21, has 29 occurrences of this Greek word agape. It's just over and over and over and over. More than any other paragraph or passage in the entire Bible, this passage is teaching us about love. So take your copy of the scriptures. Let's read our passage this morning. 1 John chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 13. And we'll go to the end of the chapter. Word of God says this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world." There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. We have sung together as your people. We've sung about your grace and your mercy and your love for us. And we come to 1 John and we see this passage that has so much to say about love about loving you and loving each other and, most importantly, your love for us. And, Father, our prayer this morning is that you would open our eyes to the truth, give us ears to hear. Lord, give us hearts that would be eager to take what we hear and what we read in this passage and apply it to our lives. We pray all this in your name. Amen. This morning we're just going to jump right in. John talks about two tests, a Christological test, and a social test. We've talked about both of these tests over the summer months, and all I want to do this morning is help you see these two tests as they're expressed in the passage. And then as we go, I just want to make a few comments and a few points of application as we think about what do we do with all of this in Odessa, Texas in the year 2020. So let's first talk about the Christological test. I want you to understand this. Believing the truth about Jesus means trusting in the saving work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Every member of the Trinity is described here. Every member of the Trinity is active in our salvation. 
And this is worth pointing out. We've talked about this Christological test. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? Jesus is the focal point of our faith as Christians. But in this passage, John is expanding the playing field just a little bit. And rather than focusing exclusively on God the Son, he begins to talk about God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, the Trinity. We've seen this over and over and over in 1 John. Look at the text. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. He talks about abiding in God. We know that we abide in God and that he abides in us because he's given us his spirit. God the Father gives God the Holy Spirit to his people. Verse 14 says, we've seen and testified that the Father, that's God the Father, sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father is sending the Son. Verse 15, if you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, again we're looking at the second person of the Trinity, if you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, well, God abides in you and you in God. That's back to the idea that the Holy Spirit lives in us and allows us to abide in God. This is a Trinitarian view of salvation. Listen, this book is not just a book about God, a deity, a higher power, a supreme being. This is a Trinitarian book. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have received salvation that was accomplished by Father, Son, and Spirit. All members of the Trinity active and involved in the salvation of every sinner. As Christian people, we're not just people who believe in a generic, vanilla, vague, run-of-the-mill, ordinary idea of God. We believe in the one true God who from eternity past has existed, although he's one in essence, as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are Trinitarian people. And our old friend, John Stott, we've talked about him or we've referred to him each week. He just points this out. He says, the Trinitarian reference is plain. Don't miss it. It's obvious. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sent his Son into the world as the Savior, sent his Spirit into our hearts as witness. Now, as Baptist people, I think we're pretty comfortable with the idea of God the Father. And we're pretty comfortable with the idea of God the Son, Jesus. But as Baptists, sometimes we get sort of squeamish and uneasy and uncertain when it comes to God the Holy Spirit, right? And sometimes as Baptists we say, what in the world do I do with God the Holy Spirit? We look around at all these other churches and other Christians and we see what they say about the Holy Spirit and we see kind of what's going on and we say, are we missing something here? Like, should that be going on here? What do, we, what do we do with the Holy Spirit? To be very direct, how would a person know if they have the Holy Spirit in their life? I've been told a number of answers to that question. I'll just put them up on the screen. People have told me you need to speak in tongues. That's how you know you have the Holy Spirit. Do you speak in tongues? If you don't speak in tongues, it's because you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you want to have the Holy Spirit, you better learn how to speak in tongues. Other people have said, no, it's, it's sort of like a, a vision that you would experience, like a, a dream of some kind, or God would reveal something to you, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's how you know. Other people would say, no, it's not so much those things as a voice. Like you hear a voice. as God the Holy Spirit talking to you, and 
Some of you are kind of looking around awkwardly saying, I, I hear voices in my head, but they don't sound much like the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's him, okay? Some people would just be more generic and say, you know, it's kind of a, a feeling. When you have your quiet time, you have this feeling. You pray, you have this feeling. You sing along with the praise band, you have this feeling. And again, some of you are saying, have a feeling, like, I'm feeling hungry. It's almost lunchtime. Is that the Holy Spirit telling me, you know, what's going on? How do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? Here's the problem with all those answers. They're not biblical answers. The question, how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit in your life? Let me give you the simplest, most biblical answer I can give you to the question, how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit? You know the Holy Spirit abides in you if you believe the truth about Jesus Christ period. If you believe the truth about Jesus, you can have confidence that the Holy Spirit is living in your life, is part of your life, is present in your life. You don't have to wait for a vision. You don't have to have some sort of charismatic speaking in tongues type experience. You don't have to uh, have a, a voice in your head telling you certain things. You don't have to have even a certain feeling about devotions or prayer or worship. Do you believe the truth about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity that causes us to be born again. When we're dead in our sins and our trespasses, the Holy Spirit gives us new life. The Bible describes it at one point as the the Spirit of God taking out our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh dealing with, in a decisive way, our inability to believe in Jesus and granting us the ability to believe in Jesus. He's the one that opens our eyes to spiritual things and opens our ears to spiritual truths. This is how Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, John 16. This is the the very end of Jesus' life. He said to his disciples, I have many things to say to you. You cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. If you believe the truth about Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit has guided you to the truth. Jesus goes on. He says, whatever he hears, he will speak. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not just this sort of vague, non-entity, just sort of power out there. The Holy Spirit is a person, is a member of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. He will speak what he hears. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. God, the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. If you find yourself in a setting or a place where the Holy Spirit is the exclusive focus of discussion and prayer and talk and devotion and, and worship, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is not present in that. That's not what the Spirit does. The Spirit doesn't make much of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit makes much of Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, if you believe the truth about Jesus, it's not that you are smarter than your unbelieving neighbor. It's that the Holy Spirit is present and at work in your life. That's what John says in verse 13. Here's how we know that we abide in him and he in us. He's given us his spirit. And what's the result of that? Verse 14, we have seen and we testify. We believe that the Father sent the Son 
to be the Savior of the world. Verse 15, if you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, you confess the truth about Jesus, here's what John says, God abides in you and you in God. Here's another thing I want you to understand about this Trinitarian work of salvation, something I think we can pull out of the text here. Childlike faith, childlike faith in Jesus does not give any of us the license, the excuse, the justification to be childish in our thinking about Jesus. Childlike faith in Jesus does not give us license to be childish in our thinking about Jesus. You don't need a doctorate in systematic theology or New Testament Greek, Old Testament Hebrew to believe the good news about Jesus. You don't need a a diploma hanging on your wall from a theological institution of higher education. You don't need that to believe the good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus, the gospel message, is a very simple message. When I think about the gospel message, my mind always goes to a man named J.I. Packer. He passed away at the end of this week. He was 93 years old. He wrote a book called evangelism and the sovereignty of God. And in that book, he talks about the gospel and he just makes it so simple that even a dummy like me can get it. He says, look, God is holy, man is sinful, Jesus is the answer, you need to repent and believe. That's it. It's not complicated. This is not high level stuff. There is a holy creator God who loved sinners while they were still dead in their sins. And out of that love, he sent his only son, Jesus, to die on a cross so that you could be forgiven. And the call on your life is simple. Turn away from sin and self and turn to Jesus in faith. And the promise of the gospel is so beautiful. If you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will not cast you away. He will give you eternal life. That's not complicated. That's not hard to understand. In fact, Jesus, as he's laying out the good news of the gospel, at one point says, if you're going to come to me, you've got to come with a childlike faith. However, coming to Jesus with a childlike faith does not give us an excuse to be childish in the way that we think about Jesus. Notice some of the stuff John talks about here. Verse 13 He talks about God abiding in us and us in God, this mutual abiding. That's a hard thing to wrestle with. That's a a deep doctrinal truth. Look what he says in verse 14. He talks about God the Father sending God the Son to be the Savior of the world. There's a whole volume of Christology that could be unpacked there. Jesus coming. Jesus, the Savior of the world. Look what he says in verse 15. Confessing that Jesus is the Son. There's something specific about Jesus you need to know. God abiding in you and you abiding in God. All this stuff is sort of heady. It's hard to take in. It's hard to think about. You say, what about childlike faith? Listen, come to Jesus with childlike faith. Confess your sin. Believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and you'll be saved. But John is nowhere letting us off the hook for learning and growing in discipleship. There is not a person on the earth who will accidentally become a good theologian. You don't accidentally become a good theologian. 
you accidentally become a heretic. If you want to be a good theologian, it takes thought, it takes study of the scriptures, it takes humility, being able to admit when you're wrong and you need to change your mind about something, and that's the goal. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus did not say, I'm sending you out to get people to pray a prayer, pat them on the back, and give them a spiritual thumbs up. Matthew 28, go make disciples. Start by baptizing them. Those who have childlike faith, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then, also part of the Great Commission, you teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. You help them grow up. Look how Paul talked about it in Ephesians chapter 4. He's talking about why do we have teachers? Why do we have preachers? Why do we have missionaries? Why do we have evangelists? He says, here's the reason. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. That's Christ. Grow up. Paul says, don't be childish in your thinking. Yes, you come to Jesus with childlike faith, but the end goal is not childish faith. John's talking about that here. Throughout this book, he talks about deep doctrinal truths that are part of this Christological test. So that's test number one. Let's talk about test number two, the social test. The social test. Here's where we're going to start with the social test. We need to understand that our love is the result of God's love, not some kind of manipulated guilt. Our love for God and our love for others is the result of God's love for us. It is not the result of some sort of manipulated guilt. John says so much about God's love in this passage. And so much of what he says just comes back to this idea that God loved us first. Look what John says in verse 16. Take your copy of the scriptures, look at verse 16. John says, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. I hope that you have come to know and to believe in the love that God has for you. I hope you know that. I also hope you know what comes next. And what comes next is not, you were just so lovable, God couldn't help it. What comes next is a very simple but a very profound statement. We have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love. God's love for sinners is not rooted in how good we can be, how lovable we can be. We're some, in some sense irresistible to God. He just can't seem to live without us. God's love for us is rooted in him, not us. He's love. And I hope you understand that's really good news. It's really good news. Because if you think that God's love for you is rooted in how good you can be, you're going to be on the ultimate spiritual roller coaster. And you're going to have days and moments where you feel like you're the greatest person ever and you're going to say, well, of course God loves me. You're going to have other days that are not so great and you're going to say, there is no way he loves me. I'm just telling you, you don't have to worry about either of those, really. 
Because God's love for you is not rooted in who you are. It's rooted in who he is. We've come to know, we've come to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. He makes it even more clear in verse 19 when he says, We love because he first loved us. That's the reason we love. It's the reason we love God. It's the reason we love other people. It's because God loved us first. Is not the idea that God looked down through the corridors of time to see how many people and which people would love him. It's that he loved us first. Really and truly first. His love is the reason that we love. Our love is the result of God's love, not manipulated guilt. I think this matters a lot in 2020. There's a lot of talk right now about how we could have a better world or a better country. I don't know if that thought has crossed your mind in the last couple of months, but I imagine at some point you've thought, what in the world is wrong with us? And how could we be more loving to each other? One of the answers you will hear from a lot of experts and a lot of people with a lot of letters behind their names is that if we're going to be more loving towards each other, first we've got to be divided up into different groups, and then as different groups we need to acknowledge and admit all the stuff wrong with us. We've got to own this problem, and we've got to feel bad about that problem. We've got to recognize that this is my fault, and this is your fault, and this is their fault. And we're told that if we do that, we divvy up into groups, and we all feel really bad about things, we're told that the end result is that we'll all be more loving. I don't think that's going to be the end result. I think the end result is going to be more division. I think the end result is going to be resentment between these groups that we've divided up into. I think the result is going to be a low-grade guilt that doesn't actually result in love. What John's talking about is something that is actually powerful and transformative in our lives. Because God is love, because that's part of who he is, because we've come to know and believe the love that he has for us, we can be loving people. Let's talk about this, fear and love. John brings this up. I want to be clear that we all understand God's people are people who fear God and love God. Both of those things. Both of those things. How many of you, if we went home to your closet, have an old ratty t-shirt that says something like this on it? Any of you remember these t-shirts, No Fear t-shirts? This company came out in 1989, and they made t-shirts, and they made decals that we all put on our cars. I didn't put one on my car, but some of you, I bet, had one of these on your car. And uh, a couple years later, they started opening stores and selling their brand of T-shirt and clothing. And in 2002, they launched an energy drink. I don't know about you. That sounds like a bad college dare. No fear energy drink. I dare you to drink it. I'm afraid. I don't want it. And in 2011, they declared bankruptcy. They're gone. No fear is no more. John enters this discussion about fear. And John doesn't say, you need to get a no-fear T-shirt. You need a decal on the back of your pickup truck. That'll show them how tough you are. John says, let me tell you about not having fear. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. 
You say, well, that's not going to sell T-shirts to men. Maybe not, but it's truth. John says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do, underline this word, circle this word, with punishment. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When John talks about fear here, John is not telling you, you no longer have to fear God. John is saying, you no longer have to fear God's punishment. There's a difference. You see what he said in verse 17? By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence, not fear, confidence on the day of judgment. As Christians, we fear God, but we don't fear his judgment and his wrath because we believe it was satisfied at the cross. Do you see the connection here between the overarching purpose of this book, 1 John 5, 13? John wants us to know and have certainty about our life in Jesus. If you have certainty about eternal life in Jesus Christ, you will fear God, but you will not fear judgment. You will not fear punishment. And as Christians, we're people who fear God and love God. This is nothing new. This is as old as the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Moses says to the people before they go into the land, this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God. Moses wanted the people as they go into the land to fear God. And then look what he says a few verses later. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You say, Moses, which do you want us to do? Do you want us to fear God or love God? And Moses, like a true friend, comes alongside and says, yes. Walk, chew your bubble gum. Fear God, not judgment. And love God. Do both. John's talking about that here. Here's one last thing I want you to see about this social test. God's people show love for God by loving other believers. We show our love for God by loving other believers. Verse 20 and 21. I want you to mark a few words if you're a person who marks words in your Bible. If anyone says, I love God. We live in the Bible Belt. You ever heard anybody say that? I love God. Posted on my social media. Got a little fish bumper sticker on my car. I'm sitting in church for crying out loud. Of course I love God. John says, okay, okay. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, underline the word brother, he's a liar. He who does not love his brother, underline brother, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, underline brother. In the book of 1 John, that word brother is sort of a technical term. It doesn't talk about DNA or biology. It's talking about faith. Some Bible translations use the phrase brothers and sisters. Some use the phrase brethren. Some use the phrase one another. He's talking about Christians. And John is saying, if you say that you love God, but you don't love other Christians, you don't love the people in your church, you don't love other believers, 
Here's what John says. You're a liar. That's not a popular thing to say to people today. That's what John says. You claim to love God, but you don't love other believers. You are a liar, according to John. You say, what about Jesus in Matthew 22? Jesus says, love your neighbor. He doesn't say your neighbor has to be a believer. That's true. You say, what about Jesus in Matthew 7, 34 to 44? Jesus talks about loving your enemies. Not just your neighbor, but your enemies. You're supposed to love your enemies. That's also true. John believed all that. He knew you're supposed to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. He knew you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. But here he's talking about something not different, just more specific. And what he says is, if you truly love God, it will translate into love for other believers. Sounds easy. Not always easy. In 2020, we face a number of unique opportunities as Christian people and threats as Christian people. And when you think about the life of a church, I think really every threat is also an opportunity of sorts and every opportunity is a threat of sorts. We have a a unique opportunity in 2020 to show the world The world that right now, maybe more than ever, realizes we are not very loving people. And we need to be better at that. And they're trying to figure it out. I mean, they're trying to say, how can we do better? Well, we know. We have an opportunity to show them that. There's also a threat in our circumstance and our situation today. Here's the threat. We're in the middle of COVID-19, coronavirus, the Rona, whatever you want to call it. Okay, we're in the midst of this pandemic. We've got governors and attorney generals and legislatures trying to tell us what we ought to do, have to do, shouldn't do. Not everyone agrees on that. This state's doing one thing, that state's doing another thing. There's lockdowns, there's mask mandates, there's all sorts of rules about going into businesses and who can have a business open and who can't have a business open and what should you do when you go to church? What should you not do when you go to church? What are we going to do with kids in the fall? Are we going to send them? Are we not going to send them? There's all these things that we're debating and we're talking about right now. We weren't talking about any of this stuff six months ago. But now we're talking about it. And we're all sort of kicking it around. The opportunity we have as Christian people is to show love to each other in the midst of this discussion. The threat is we allow the discussion to tear us apart. Just to destroy us as a church. And I don't just mean at Emmanuel. I mean at Emmanuel, but I just mean as Christian people in general. There's a threat we face right now. On one side of it, you say, I'm just tempted to believe the worst about other Christians who are less concerned about coronavirus than I am. And I don't understand why they're not more concerned. Don't they care about people? Don't they love people? Didn't they listen to the sermon this morning? What's the matter with these folks? And at the same time, there's a group over here, and the threat faced by this group is to look the other direction and say, would you look at those knuckleheads who are more concerned about coronavirus than anything I've ever seen. Don't those people have any faith? What are they so daggum scared about? 
And we can take a temporal issue that wasn't around six months ago, and let's be honest, at some point in the future, no one knows when, but at some point in the future, it's not going to be an issue anymore. And we allow it to tear us apart. Something that's not going to matter in 10 years, much less a million years. Can you think a million years into the future? If you're a Christian, you should be able to. That's eternal life and beyond. Is it going to matter in a million years? Here's what's going to matter in a million years. Do you believe the truth about Jesus Christ? Yes or no? I hope it's yes. Here's what's going to matter in a million years. Do you love other believers today, even when it's tough, even when you're tempted to divide and call names and point fingers? Do you love them? We can do what the world would have us do, and that's divide up and point fingers, and you should feel bad for that, and you should feel bad for this. Or we can do what Christian people do, and that's say, no, 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 no. We're not going to divide over that stuff. Here's what really matters. It's the truth about Jesus and showing love to each other, even when it's not popular, even when the world doesn't understand it, even when they don't get it. Do you see the opportunity that we have as Christian people to show the world? This is where you find love. This is what love looks like. That's what's going to matter in a year, 10 years, in a million years. The big idea of this passage is so clear. As Christian people, we can have confidence about eternal life when we believe the truth about Jesus and we love one another. A corollary truth, a parallel truth is the idea that we're going to find our unity, not in our favorite sports teams, not in our favorite hobbies, not in this political party or that political party, not in what do you think about the coronavirus. We're going to find our unity in the truth about Jesus and in loving each other.